Welcome to Sound Bites in Modern Art. This is Dr. Jean Ouellette. I'm an art historian and art critic who specializes in modern and contemporary art and theory, and I am the author of these podcasts. By the 1960s, the exclusion of all non-art events from fine art was complete, just in time, because this would be a decade of social unrest. Who would rise to the occasion but an artist trained to respond to real events in the real world by calming his audience but Norman Rockwell, closet liberal, who spoke to his own time with courage and conviction. Rockwell was perhaps one of the few artists in the post-war period who was able to address current events with credibility. He had gotten America through the Second World War and he would lead the nation through another disruptive period. Rockwell, who had served in the Navy during the Great War, represented the Second World War directly only once in a 1942 poster, Let's Give Him Enough and On Time. The soldier who posed for the poster allowed the artist to whip his uniform, but insisted that his machine gun be properly polished. The war years were Rockwell's glory years, but his covers for the Saturday Evening Post came to characterize the Eisenhower years, a near decade of refusal to come to grips with the implications of what the war had wrought. Contrary to popular belief, some of Rockwell's covers hinted at things to come. As early as 1946, a post cover Boy in a dining car shows a young white boy traveling on his own, being waited on by a kindly black attendant. On the surface, the painting seems to be yet another Rockwell, sweet-natured genre painting, a scene of a taken-for-granted social situation, the superiority of whites, even by a seated young boy over blacks, even a standing older man who takes care of a child. In 1946, the attendant has one of the best jobs for African Americans in the nation, working for the railroad. But thousands of younger black men who had served their country, fought and died for democracy, came home to segregation. When dealing with race, Rockwell would often make children his major actors as though the adults were past saving. But the true encounters between the races, those that would rock the 60s, were in the future, and any intimation of racial tension was not allowed in the post. The post continued the credo of George Lorimer, who, in the 1920s, wanted to soften the blow of change for his readers and to knit them into the connective tissue of the traditional values he had consciously created for Americans. In 1949, Norman Rockwell was living in Los Angeles, largely for his wife's mental health. Here, they were both under the care of the famous psychologist Eric Erickson. Rockwell was the first visiting artist at the oldest art college in Los Angeles, now called Otis College of Art and Design. And Los Angeles was the setting for the cover, the new television antenna. The cover was set in an old neighborhood on Adams Street. A new antenna is being installed on an old Victorian rooftop. In the background, there is a white church steeple topped by a competing cross. 
Aside from the television set, barely visible in the interior of the room under the peaked gabled roof, there is nothing modern or contemporary, no sign that the city of Los Angeles is exploding with growth thanks to the new military industrial complex. New television antenna is about the passing of the old, which is overridden by the new, while clinging tenaciously to traditional ways. This theme, the survival of nostalgia, appears again and again in Rockwell's covers of the 1950s, saving grace of 1951. A grandmother and grandson, both people from another time, bow their heads and bless their food in a busy restaurant. Saving Grace is one of Rockwell's few urban scenes. Through the window of the restaurant, we see a train and a factory, a sharp contrast to the old-fashioned pair and their old-fashioned values. The marriage license of 1955 shows a young couple, the woman in a bright yellow shirt dress with puffed sleeves, filling out forms in a dark, old-world 19th century office presided over by a character from Dickens, complete with brass spittoon. After the prom of 1957 shows a teenage couple. Rockwell's son is the model at an old-fashioned drugstore counter. Not exactly an elegant end to a dance. These old-fashioned counters would all but vanish over the next decade due to the pressure to integrate the soda fountains. It is doubtful Rockwell, whose wife Mary was dissolving emotionally due to his demands that she take care of him and his business affairs, could have foreseen women's liberation, but he explored the process by which little girls are socialized into appropriate behavior. Using a movie-like storyboard with a sequence of 25 sketches in A Day in the Life of a Little Girl, 1952, the artist shows a pigtailed, athletic, assertive little girl have a birthday, receive her first kiss, and subside meekly at the end of the day, transformed by puppy love. The little pigtailed girl reappears in 1953 as girl with black eye. On the verge of adolescence, she is still fighting in the schoolyard, but her smile tells us she has won. Her triumph will be short-lived because the principal's office awaits, as does the hard job of growing up. We meet her again in 1954 with girl in mirror. The active, self-confident child is gone. In her place is an insecure little girl wearing a lacy white nightgown, staring at herself in a mirror. Her doll has been cast aside in favor of styling and grooming aids, hairbrush, bobby pins, lipstick, all inspired by a picture in a fan magazine devoted to movie stars. Now she compares herself to a manufactured female ideal, Jane Russell, instead of charting her own course. Another whole back time theme painting called Walking to Church of 1953 shows a prim family, self-righteous and smug, boys, two of them, and father in blue, the girls and the mother in pink. Their route takes them through an old urban neighborhood, past the Silver Slipper Grill, 
and past Victorian architectural details, and signs of decay abound. Trash scatters the sidewalk, but the mother clutches her prayer book, gold cross prominently displayed as if to ward off the curse of passing time. With the benefit of hindsight, we know that in the wake of the 1953 Brown versus Board of Education decision, families such as this will abandon the cities and move to the suburbs for white schools. Perhaps the most touching image of transition is Breaking Home Ties of 1954, which points to the transformative role higher education would have. Once again, Rockwell's imagination connected him to a farm lad in his Sunday best and his shiny new suitcase and his textbooks. He is leaving his rural home, its old-fashioned lantern and pre-war truck behind. Helpless to stop progress, his grandfather slumps sadly and his collie dog places her muzzle on his lap. The young man is polite but eager to be on his way. The worlds that Rockwell had painted in the 50s were vanishing. Shuffleton's Barbershop of 1950 looked like it belonged to the 19th century. Rockwell's triple self-portrait of 1960 was his prediction of his farewell to the Saturday Evening Post. The artist is in his studio. Inspired by reproductions of self-portraits by Dora and Rembrandt tacked to his easel, Rockwell, his back to the viewer, sketches himself on canvas and looks at himself in a mirror that is crowned by an American eagle. One could almost say past, present, and future. His tribute to the late Jackson Pollock, the connoisseur of 1962, shows a dapper older man, gray hair, gray suit, white hair, white hat, white gloves, black umbrella matching his black hat band and shoes. Back to the spectator, he views a framed faux Jackson Pollock drip painting. Executed on a small scale on the floor by Rockwell himself, this painting was good enough to win second place at a local art fair. Readers of the Post, who assumed that Rockwell was their reactionary champion, were puzzled by this glimmer of his true leanings. Like the young man in Breaking Home Ties, Rockwell also had to think of his next move. Although the Saturday Evening Post was the first mass media publication to support itself through advertising, its time was past. Rockwell was too old-fashioned and unwilling to change his style to keep up with the times. His last covers for the Post were portraits of America's presidents, Eisenhower, who disappointed him, and Kennedy, who excited him. But the artist had one last move, and he went to a newer magazine, Look, preferring its more socially conscious sensibility. In 1960, Rockwell's second wife died. Some suspected suicide, and he remarried, this time happily, in 1961. Now in his 60s, the artist was a persona non grata in the art world, and for many, he personified all things old-fashioned, false, and passé. However, in the twilight of his career, he could act on his core principles. While other New York artists became contemporary through pop art and remained avant-garde through minimal art, Norman Rockwell, now living in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, 
turned and faced the change. From 1955, the civil rights movement led by black preachers like Martin Luther King was peaceful and nonviolent, at least on his side. By 1961, the younger members of the movement became more assertive and confrontational. Lunch counter sit-ins in Greensboro, North Carolina started in 1960 and spread to 54 cities in nine states. In 1961, the Freedom Riders began riding buses into the heart of the Confederacy. Courts began to order desegregation as early as 1957. Rockwell was now working for a more progressive magazine, Look, which used photographs for its covers, the new trend. Rockwell's paintings were shown inside. These commissions for Look were remarkable in their full embrace of the contemporary and the complete banishment of the past. His best-known painting, The Problem We All Live With, The True Story of Ruby Bridges, was painted in 1964. The actual violent incident directed towards a child occurred in New Orleans. Robert Coles, an Air Force doctor who had been drafted, was in New Orleans and was shocked by what he witnessed. As Dr. Coles later wrote, quote, I walked a few blocks and soon enough, I was in the presence of a large crowd of men, women, and children who were not only milling around, but occasionally uniting in a shouted refrain, two, four, six, eight, we don't want to integrate. Police were standing here and there, and some of them, I noticed, joining in the screaming. I asked a middle-aged woman who seemed friendly what was happening. She told me right away with words I'll never stop hearing in my head. They're trying to bring a nigger kid into our school. It'll be over our dead bodies. I was stunned. A well-dressed, fine-spoken woman who had descended into panicky malice, who couldn't seem to help herself, who was ranting on a street corner to a Yankee stranger. Suddenly, all eyes were directed towards several cars, which, out of nowhere it seemed, had arrived in front of the school. One of them, out of them, a number of men jumped quickly, warily, out of the car. And out of the car, two men and a small girl, dressed in white, with a white bow in her hair and a lunchbox in her right hand. Suddenly, as the men and the child approached the school, walked up its steps, the crowd got back its collective voice and started the chant I had already heard, kept repeating it, interrupted, by cuss words, threats, terrible curses. The girl didn't look back. The men kept walking. And, I noticed, were armed. End quote. Norman Rockwell's painting called The Problem We All Live With shows Ruby Bridges, six years old, clad in white, from the ribbon in her hair to her white socks and sneakers. She is walking into the William Franz School, escorted by four federal marshals. The wall behind her is covered with the juices of thrown tomatoes and bears the scroll of the N-word. It is a powerful and ugly and moving picture of prejudiced and unreasoning hate. George Harris Lorimer at The Post had refused to allow African Americans on the cover except its servants, and now, 30 years after Lorimer's departure, Wackwell painted Southern Justice, also called 
murder in Mississippi in 1965. Although Medgar Evers was murdered in Mississippi in 1963, this painting refers to the triple murder of three civil rights workers, two white and one black, also in Mississippi. Painted all in brown tones, the work is unrelieved except for the white shirts and the red blood on the shoulder of the black man who was the first to be shot. His white friend, the last man standing, holds his black friend, and the other young white man lies at their feet. Dark shadows approach the killers who will never be convicted by a white jury in Mississippi. The state refused to indict anyone, and the federal government tried 16 suspects with more or less unsatisfactory results. The state of Mississippi finally indicted, tried, and convicted one of the killers in 2005. Look Magazine published Rockwell's last graphic and detailed sketch of the murders. The suite of civil rights paintings ends on a note of hope. Just as Ruby Bridges was a hero, the children in New Kids in the Neighborhood of 1967 are Rockwell's hope for the future. A black family with a white cat moves into a white suburb, and three white kids with a black dog take the measure of their new friends, a boy and a girl. All three of the boys, black and white, carry baseball mitts. The two little girls wear pink hair ribbons. We like to think that their parents will let them be friends. At the end of the 60s, Rockwell painted an uninteresting series on the space program, including the moon landing in 1969. The next and last decade of Rockwell's long life and 60-year career was filled with retrospectives and honors. The first event, however, was an embarrassing one. On the occasion of a rare gallery show by Rockwell at the Bernard Dannenberg in 1968, few people came. Instead, the public went to a big show for the younger illustrator, Andrew Wythe at the Whitney. But then came the nostalgia waves of the 1970s, and Rockwell transcended art quarrels as the baby boomers began yearning for their childhood. The publisher, Harry Abrams, brought out the first major monograph on his work in 1971, and the Brooklyn Museum gave him a retrospective in 1972. Of course, with honors came the renewed scorn of the fine art critics. But even while he was protesting the war in Vietnam, Rockwell began to experience the onset of Alzheimer's. I'm mixed up, he often said. In frail health, his weight dangerously low, he lived long enough and was aware enough to receive the Presidential Medal of Freedom, founded by John F. Kennedy, awarded to him by President Gerald Ford in 1977. A year later, he dissolved into incoherent rages, and in 1978, he died. A long life begun in 1894 was over. Norman Rockwell had seen and had drawn his own century. Tune in, click on, download. Thank you very much.